Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. This is episode 170 of the show, and it's Thursday, October the 26th, 2023, as I record this. And I am returned from the ex-colonies with news. Lord Baltimore's college was perhaps the most useful fencing event I have ever been to. It combined classes with high-level instructors with a chance to actually work on your fencing. Here's the format. Day one, we had two tracks of classes. We started with a warm-up, and then there were six classes in each track, or maybe it was more, I can't remember, because I was busy working. This is the classic historical martial arts event format, more or less. Every student could experience a class with the instructor they are most interested in, and there was a wide range of topics to choose from. I personally taught two classes, how to give and receive an individual lesson, and smooth striking, a class on capoeira rapier mechanics, emphasizing what you need for successful fencing, rather than for ramming a four-foot-long steel spike through somebody's skull. Day two had each instructor working with a group of eight to twelve, eight to twelve students. The assignment wasn't completely random. David Biggs, the organiser, made sure that there was a reasonable mix of skill levels and that folk from the same clubs were generally separated. We then worked on their fencing skill for about three or four hours before lunch and carried on after lunch with dojo busting, where each group got to fence people from another group, then do some after-action review. My most excellent group of students were a joy to work with. We focused on staying focused on one specific training goal at a time. Run a diagnostic, fix the weakest link, run the diagnostic again. This is all stuff I put in my books and have done for the last 12 years or so, but nobody seems to remember it, (laughs) so it's it's good to get it in person. Um, You'll find its most recent incarnation of this this training method in the Duelist Companion 2nd Edition, which of course you can get from swordschool.shop. The groups were led by David, David Biggs, the organiser, Puck Curtis, Justin Orcoin, Tim Lyon, and me. By the end of the day, my students had fenced everyone in our group at least twice and had at least one bout with somebody in each of the other groups. With 10 people in my class, that's at least 22 bouts with at least 13 different opponents each. That is an awful lot more than you normally get at an event in any kind of structured, formatted way. The goal of this weekend was to provide most of the benefits of going to a tournament with as little of the downsides as possible. The two main inefficiencies in tournaments are that you don't get that many bouts in and there is no opportunity to deliberately work on what you have just learned. With this format, you get in a ton of fencing and the chance to work on what your last bout just taught you while it's still fresh in mind. The only real benefit of tournaments that this did not address is the competitive pressure. We did include a bit. Every dojo busting ended with two champions fighting for the honour of their group. We selected our champions by firstly an elimination round in our class to find the first champion, and then by simply working through all the other people who wanted to have a go. Um, So that provides a little bit of pressure for those that want it. The only real drawback for me at this event was that given that it was raining on day one and there was nowhere dry to fence, and I was too busy working with my team all day on day two, I didn't actually get any fencing in at all myself. But that's okay. Um, my gear stayed in, in my bag, but I was there to work, not to play, so that's perfectly fine. Seriously though, when it comes to event planning, this is very easy to set up, or so the organisers tell me, compared to a tournament, 
and it was much, much more efficient at generating noticeable improvements in the student's fencing skill. Feel free to borrow the format for any event you're running. It was excellent to see my friends and colleagues, especially Puck and Tim, who I hadn't seen for many years. And just a shout out here for Puck. I think he has the best interpretation of Spanish rapier I have seen in the Anglosphere. And Tim, that's Tim Lyon, um, the first time I fenced him was probably 15 years ago. And we could name the plate from Fabris that he stabbed me with. Um, and his, so his, his interpretation of Fabris is lovely to watch when fencing. And I think it's maybe the best interpretation of Fabris I know of, again, in the Anglosphere. So um, that was a fantastic time. Now, I came back with a whole lot of stuff to work on. Um, you may remember, if you're a regular listener to this show, that I was in Kansas in July working with Jessica Finley. One of the things we created there was the footage for an online course documenting her interpretation of Lichtenauer. I am now editing that material, and I have about half of it done so far. So the course will be going live soon. Patrons on Patreon already have a discount code to get into the course while it's being built. Now, this course is a little bit different to the ones I usually create. Um, it is more focused on documenting a complete interpretation rather than developing fencing skill. But if you're using my courses, you already know how to develop fencing skill. And so you can apply that approach to the material on this course. But what we wanted to do in the time that we had was get a working interpretation with physical examples of the 12 Hauptstücke, the main pieces of the art according to Lichtenauer. And of course, we threw in a bunch of extra stuff too. So that is coming shortly. Um, on Sword People, now, Sword People is fantastic. I love the algorithm-free, ad-free social media experience. It is by far the best bit of social media on the planet. But the format of the platform isn't quite right for what we're trying to do. It's a bit too clunky for people to interact with each other um, because everything, when I set it up, I sort of siloed it into different areas of interest. So Spanish rapier over here and uh, Fiore Longsword over there sort of thing. Um, and given that it's quite a small group of people on the platform, um, that kind of stifles interaction. So I'm reorganizing it taking people's posts out of the sub forums and putting putting them into the main forums, we're probably going to end up putting everything into one place to start with. And that, so everyone can kind of see what everyone else is talking about and decide what they want to interact with. And then let it divide up naturally into interest groups and then create new spaces for those interest groups when those groups are big enough to need their own space. That's is probably what I should have done to start with, but you know, never done this before. So learning as we go. Um, so within the sort of larger forum where everything is going to get dumped, we will use hashtags to enable navigation so you can find the things you're interested in. So that is a, going to be a work in progress, of course, and it will take some time to sort out. But we're just trying to make sword people. It's already great for like specific interests, but we want to also make it better for like the social experience. I am also plugging away at the books in progress, which are from medieval manuscript to modern practice, the wrestling techniques of Fiori Delibery, um, which is it's basically done. It just needs a little bit of editing, um, but I'm resting it before I edit it. And of course, I'm also working on the Armadzari workbook part two. Um, they can sit there for a while while I get the course out the door uh, and upgrade sword people, um, but they are, they're coming. Don't worry. Um, and of course, Katie and I are still working on our secret project, which should be launching towards the end of November. 
Um, and it's way too cool to keep it secret too long, but I'm very much enjoying teasing you with this secret project. Now, without further ado, let's get on with the interview. I'm here today with Aurelia Sedlmeier, who is a historical fencer, a translator, a transcriber, and is now studying the conservation of paper and books. So we have swords and we have books, which is just how we like it on this show. So without further ado, Aurelia, welcome to the show. Thank you, Guy. Good to be here. And whereabouts in the world are you right now? I'm on the Isle of Man. On the Isle of Man, so on not Canada at all? No, not Canada at all. Haven't been to Canada. Well, I was in Canada just last month, but now... We live here since last year, April. Okay. Uh, why the Isle of Man? Uh, because it's a beautiful place, because it was in some ways very convenient to move here for me to go and study the conservation of books and paper, um, okay. which I'm not doing on the Isle of Man. <laughs> <laughs> no, because and the Isle of Man is an island. It is an island in the Irish Sea, yes. Yes, and convenient is not a word that I would associate with it, because I mean... No, it is inconvenient to get to, but it is beautiful, and it um, ticked all the boxes for us to remain in the British Isles for a longer, long-ish period, I should say. And, okay, um, I'm, I'm curious, so what, what are those boxes that it ticks? It is reasonably close to Europe, which is where my mother and other family are, Okay. Uh, which was an issue during COVID, that yeah, Canada sure. was just very, very far away. Um, and also, you're on the wrong. You were on the wrong side of Canada, so it's like yeah, you, the you, left side. I know. <laughs> yeah, you, you you get you get you know, you fly from Europe to like the eastern edge of Canada, and you're less than halfway to Vancouver. Essentially, yes. And <laughs> it's insane. Of course, sometimes there are no flights at all during right. COVID. So well, yes. Yeah. So it seemed a good thing to come closer, but to be not too close, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we didn't want to be in England itself because of professional and personal reasons, really. Um, My partner took me to the Isle of Man because he'd been here a long time ago and always thought it would be really neat to be there for longer periods. Mm -hmm. And seeing as he's being marvelous in supporting my endeavor to educate myself, I thought that would would be the least I could do to take a look at it, and I really enjoyed it. (laughs) Okay, so... um you're not actually Canadian then? I am Canadian. Okay. But you have family in Europe. So I'm, I'm I, just, just I'm my, curious my, about the legalities of, of things because I don't have an EU passport anymore thanks to bloody Brexit. But my children do because their mother is technically Irish. Yes. So, yeah. Um, so you're, you're a Canadian citizen, but you have right to reside in England or UK? We applied for that. Okay. Both Bernd and I applied for that. And um, I'm actually a dependent, if you will, for his um, visa that he has for the Isle of Man. Okay. So, all right. So does, does he have European citizenship? Uh, no. Wow. Okay. It, it gets very complicated, doesn't it? it? It does get complicated. But I mean, the Isle of Man is um, independent. They have their own passport, as you probably know. Do that? I did not yeah. know that. No, they, they do. I um, did not know that. Oh, it's my God. It's a nifty thing that uh, with um, that I'm permitted to study and work in the UK as I am. Mm-hmm. But um, if somebody has a UK visa, that reverse may not necessarily be truth. Theoretically, they couldn't just come and work on the Isle of Man. Wow. Mm-hmm. Huh. Okay. Yes. And so, so you say you're not doing your book conservation stuff on 
the Isle of Man. So where is where are you studying? I'm studying in uh, Westin College of Art and Conservation, close to Chichester, okay. which is uh, West Sussex. It's a stunning right. place uh, mm -hmm. in the South Downs. And it must take uh, you an entire day to get there from the Isle of Man. It's not so bad, actually, because there are really? direct flights to Gatwick, and the train from Gatwick is about an hour to Chichester. Oh, okay. And then, depending on luck and timing, I might actually catch the bus to Westin. Okay. It's the first time in my life that I haven't had a car. Right. And it feels very strange. It is very strange. When we yeah. moved to the UK for the first time, I, I was like, we should be able to be survive here without a car because we're a half hour walk from the train station and yeah. there are buses and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And it turned out about after about six or nine months, we were like, nope, nope. <laughs> the only reason we're surviving with a car is because we have friends here who are very nice and drive us places. That is not fair. We will get a car. <laughs> Uh, so we yes, <laughs> we've been surviving so far for the last 16 months, 16 months, mm -hmm. yes, without a car. And I think it'll remain that way for for a while longer. Okay. Well, I mean, where can you drive to on the Isle of Man? <laughs> it's well, it's 100 miles around, so there are places to go, but, you <laughs> sure. know, yes. Yeah, but, but getting the car onto a ferry across the mainland, it, it's not going to be quicker getting to school. Oh, definitely not. It's uh, two hours, 45 minutes to Liverpool or Haitian. Mm -hmm. And from there, the train or car, yes, is another, yes. So, so we, we've sort of skipped over my first couple of questions, mm -hmm. and let, because we let's just get straight into this book conservation thing. Because yes, right, um, is this a residential school? <laughs> yes, <laughs> although not in the Canadian context of a residential school. Um, it it is yes, they have uh, student residences, and I am staying on campus. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if you know anything about Westine. Westine is... I don't know anything. Well, okay. what I know about Westine mm -hmm. is that about 25 years ago, I mm -hmm. looked at it for cabinet making courses. Ah, yes. Okay. Right? Yes. Um, I never actually visited it, but I, I it, it appeared on my radar then when yeah. I was looking for cabinet making training. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. Um, but I haven't actually looked at it since. So tell us all about Westine and why you chose it and what it's like to be there. Westine was um, essentially established with um, an inheritance or a foundation from Edward James, who, when he was 17, inherited the estate of Westine, which I think is about 6,500 acres of land and villages and things. Yes. And um, he was a really important figure in this with the surrealists, like with Dali and uh, various others, luminaries of that time. He um, supported them, he worked with them, he inspired them, he was a poet in, in his own right, although, of course, um, self-published poetry is, is always interesting, but he had his own um, publishing company with which he did that, and also published um, other poets. He was very um, fortunate in the sense that he had the money to support all these things. Yep. He was married to Tilly Losh, a ballet dancer, had a very acrimonious divorce from her, and um, in his later years um, spent most of his time in Mexico. Okay. But he essentially wanted Westine to be a school where the arts and conservation were um, kept and kept alive because he felt, or he was afraid rather, that the skills would die out. And um, in many ways that is very true because, yeah. you know, as, as you may have notice when you were researching the cabinet making, um, it's not so easy, A, to find the courses and to get the training, B, 
because the interest in it is waning with modern technology and other jobs being thought more valuable, arguably. Yeah. So he established a school, I think, in the mid-80s, although it was used as a school before as a girls' school and something else. But I think it became the college of uh, the Indian College of Art and Conservation in the mid-80s, I want to say. And um, they have various groups there. So there is the bookies, the book conservation people. Um, they teach uh, the repair and restoration of clocks. They have a beautiful department there. They do furniture. They make musical instruments. It's uh, quite a spectacular setting and yeah. um, a good school that way. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about going there for a watchmaking course at some point because I'm I'm obsessed with watches and um, I, I take them apart and try and put them back together again yeah. and <laughs> and have have some some success and, and many yeah. failures. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it'd be nice to actually get some formal training in it. So yeah, there's, it's a very interesting establishment um it so is. what what made you want to go and do book and paper conservation um i've been a voracious reader all my life mm -hmm. and um i um approached book making never really as the craft and the art that it is um because i didn't realize i could for some odd reason even when i was uh, graduated high school I could have theoretically gone to Germany and done an apprenticeship as a bookbinder and um, been much, much further than I am now. But in my family, <laughs> in my family, the arts weren't really a thing. Neither was okay. craft. They were all business people. So they kind of looked at me and said, what do you want to do with that? Um, right. Sadly, I let myself be influenced and um, went to school, studied international relations and a whole bunch of other things. And later went back to school to become a publisher, did my Master of Publishing at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, and had a little publishing venture, and realized that the publishing of books doesn't really, it involves the making of books, but the most important part of it is the selling of those books. Yeah, sure. And I don't excel at selling. Okay. Uh, which ended up me becoming an official translator. <laughs> okay. And... Um, what languages? German and English, English and German, okay. both ways. That's that's hard. Doing it one way is is hard. Doing it two ways is very impressive. Well, it's interesting and challenging. I enjoy medical translation and sometimes legal because there's always more to learn. It's very exciting. But um, there's also, of course, the bread and butter, which is certificates and things like that. And right. um, after 15 years of more or less doing that... Um, it was time for a change, and I just didn't know what kind of a change. And I looked at a whole bunch of things. And um, through a fluke, I came across West Dean, and I realized that um, this was a craft that I could actually learn. Yeah. I love bookbinding. Oh, I mean, I, oh, I, I bind my own. Yeah, I, I make my own notebooks and things. I mean, I don't do any really high-end fancy stuff. Um, I'm sort of at the nailing bits of wood together stage of being a bookbinder, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so, so, you know, I haven't done any headbands yet, but I, you know, I've made dozens of notebooks and put different covers on them, some with cutouts, some without, you know, and hand stitching everything so you can open it out properly yeah. and th throw it across the room and it's not going to fall apart. That's helpful, um, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so, but I have seen... I have seen what bookbinding can be. Um, Isn't that spectacular? It is. Um, I mean, it's an art form of its own. Um, yes. 
And when I was in Boston um, a while ago, I stumbled upon the... Um, no, 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 it's the something rather school, uh, North Bennett Street School, ah, yes. it's called. Yep. Right? And I know of it from cabinet making. So yes. when I happened to be on North Bennett Street yep. and I happened to pass this place, North Bennett School, that's where all those cabinet makers come from. Yes. So I went in mm-hmm. and it's not just cabinet makers. They had, and they actually had the annual exhibition of the bookbinders mm-hmm. sort of graduation. They Ooh. had the ex- their exhibition on. Yeah. And holy shit, the things yeah. they're doing with book covers. It's like, it's, you no, know, like the, the cover itself becomes like an expression of the sense of the book. Yes. And, and it's like a, it's almost like somebody did a painting of the book. And they made that into the cover, but they did it in like leather and inlay and stuff. It's just stunning. Yes, yes, it is. There were some uh, graduates of the North Bennett School um, at West Dean this last year. And um, watching their approach to work and working was just really wonderful. It was really educational also because it was very collegial. You know, nobody had a problem with passing on knowledge or sharing knowledge and skill. And helping you to sort of further your own skill and taking pride in somebody else learning something really cool. Which is how it should be. Ideally, that's how it should be. And yeah, but I have come across craftsmen who did not want to share because this is their secret technique that this is, and this is how they make their living. So they don't want to tell anybody. Um, I'm, I'm sure that exists. I've been fortunate in the sense that I haven't run into that specifically at the school and uh, with the people there. Yeah, but you, you kind of think that someone who doesn't want to share their stuff wouldn't go and take a cheating job at the school. One think. You'd hope so. <laughs> You'd hope so. But, There's but a little, little bit of selection bias there, I think. There is, but I know from the um, Vancouver Film School that that isn't always the case. You know, that there, there are some instructors who feel a little bit proprietary about the um, tricks of the trade, maybe. Right. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so are you learning to do sort of book binding, like binding new books, or is it all conservation? We started out by learning how to bind new books and are still okay. doing various book structures because right. um, it works on the theory that if you know how to make it, you will also have a better understanding of how to repair, restore, and conserve it. Absolutely. And, it, and as an mm-hmm. antiques restorer in the furniture yes. world, it works both ways. Yes. Like knowing how to make it helps you fix it, and knowing how to fix it helps you make it. Indeed, yes. Yeah, yeah. so it's a virtuous... Yeah. Because, because you know where it's weak and what needs to be worked on and what is possible to do. Right. Because, of course, with um, books, especially very valuable old books... Um, it's also a business, right? Yeah. The rare, the rare book trade is is something very special, specialized, and there's also some tomfoolery probably going on, or was in in many cases, and it's a fine line between um, restoring a book and making it look like new. Yep. To just conserving a, it. Sure, I have a copy of. Um... Uh, Alfred Hutton's Sword in the Centuries that belonged to my grandfather. Mm-hmm. And it's the first edition from, I think, 1902. Mm-hmm. And it was falling apart, as you would expect. Mm-hmm. And it had, like, the the hinge on at least yep. the front cover was torn almost all the way through. And, yep. you know, it was, it was falling apart. Yep. And I took it to this bookbinder in Colchester to have it restored. 
Yeah. Right. And he had a good look at it and he quoted me what seemed to me a fair price, but it's significantly more than you can buy the book for on the, on the second hand yes. market. Yeah. But it's still fair price. This one belonged to my grandfather. It's got pencil written notes mm-hmm. in it from him. And, you know, it's worth a lot more to me than just what I yeah. can sell it for. Yeah. Right. And when it came back, it looked like he hadn't done anything except it hadn't ever been torn. Yes. Right. But opening it up, it, mm-hmm. the binding felt solid. Yes. But it felt like basically somebody had bought the book in 1902, read it once, mm-hmm. put it on a shelf, mm-hmm. and it had just been left there ever since. Right. And, it and was, from the outside, you couldn't tell that it had been. You really, yeah. you really couldn't tell that anyone yeah. had fiddled. I mean, of course, yeah. like an, ex, an expert book binder would probably see it straight away. Yeah. But even I'm a, you know, antiques restorer in the furniture world and, mm-hmm. um, a bit of a book nerd and mm-hmm. a little bit of a bookbinder, looking at it, I can't really see what he's done. Mm-hmm. Right? It was a beautiful job. Nice. Yeah. And it was sort of, it, it trod the very fine line between conservation, where you just sort of stop the mm-hmm. decay, and restoration, where you bring it back to function. And it did. And there wasn't, but there wasn't any like modernization of it. Mm-hmm. Like a sensible thing to have done would have been just to replace the cover, but that would have ruined it. <laughs> That would have definitely ruined it, yes. It would um, have ruined the feel and the look yeah. and everything. Yeah. So, yeah, he just does an amazing job on it. Um, I shall, I've, I'm blanking on his name, but I shall put a link to his thing in the show notes so that people who are in the UK and want their books restored can send them to him. Definitely, yeah. Because <laughs> you're not qualified yet. As soon as you're qualified, not yet, we'll, no. we'll, we'll swap it over and we'll send them to you. <laughs> He'll not thank you for that. <laughs> so, so do you plan on actually running a business as a, like, paper and books restorer? I would like to, yes. Um, However, I think to um, graduate and sort of open your own hangout, your shingle, is, um, how do I put that, arrogant? Or not quite how I want to approach that because I think by the time I finish, I'll be on a path to being an expert. You'll be ready for a job. some skill. I'll be ready for a job. That's it. And um, curiously enough, the um, even the entry-level jobs for a conservator uh, is an MA. You don't right. start with a BA. You need an MA, apparently. Okay. So that that is, of course, the reason why I um, chose the school that I did, because they did offer this program. Oh, right. So you actually can get an MA from yes. Westin. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So... Uh, I know a little bit about restructuring a book and, mm-hmm. and stitching it together and whatnot. I don't know anything about how you conserve paper, which is this disgracefully fragile thing. So, But it's so do? strong on the other hand. Paper is yeah. really cool. It is really cool. Yes. Tell us all about yeah. paper. Yes. <sighs> Where to start? No. Um, it really depends on the damage that you have um, mm-hmm. in it. Uh, put simply... A lot of the time, you can repair it with uh, Japanese paper. Mm-hmm. So you repair paper with other paper or um, a paper that is very similar to the paper that was used at the time in the book that you have or in the document that you have. Um, you would okay, so, defer. Yeah. So let's say you have a tear. Yes. Um, so you paste, uh, you cut out a piece of paper of the right sort and you would paste it on. Um, yes, depends on the tear. Is it a deep tear? Do you have loss? And um, do the fibers still mesh in that tear? Because okay. sometimes you can just take little tiny fibers of the Japanese, like kozo paper or something like that, and you tear it very finely and you apply it. 
and then you won't even be able to tell that there was a tear. Oh my God. Because sometimes okay. they, they, they align properly, right? So basically, you can take the torn paper mm-hmm. and you can sort of remesh the torn fibers back together and stick them. Well, the fibers, when you moisten them, become much, much more flexible, right? Yeah. And when you have a wheat starch paste or, or um, rice starch paste, that is very, very thin, and you apply it to the Japanese fibers to just mesh a little bit better. It's a little bit like those band-aids. When you have a when you have a cut and you put those little band-aid bridges across it to pull yep. it together, it's similar to that, except not as big. Okay. And you're using wheat starch or rice rice starch paste? Usually. We would, yes. That's what, what that's what we've been using so far, and it makes um really good sense i mean you wouldn't use yeah. glue or other adhesive for it yeah, yeah i mean like like polyvinyl me- acetate would be wrong yes yes it would <laughs> very very wrong yes you could uh methyl cell use methyl cellulose and things like that also mm-hmm. um some people prefer working with that i've done a little bit with it um and it works really well. I think after a while it becomes personal preference and what you use more often, it's probably good to experiment with um, any and all to just see on something else how it, how it works and whether it melds well enough and cures well enough. Okay. Uh, so just for people who are not glue nerds, why would you not use PVA? Because it's more artificial. Because... Um, could you remove it if you had to? You probably could. Um, but it goes glossy. It goes odd. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really, really sticky right away. And um, the, the wheat starch paste, because it has such a fairly high water content, allows you to manipulate the fibers uh, for longer okay. to make it mesh better and to be smoother. Um, the PVA or EVA, um, even though EVA is, is archival, which lasts well over time, um, it feels wrong. (laughs) It's not scientific reason. It feels uh, wrong. But also it's not reversible. I mean, the the reason that the leaps to my, I mean, one of the worst things about fixing a piece of furniture that someone else has fixed before you is they very often use glues that are not reversible like PVA, whereas like proper... Um, hide, hide glue. Hide glue, yeah. 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 It's reversible with heat and water. Yeah. So yeah. you can you can repair the joint, and then if it needs to be repaired again 100 years later because it's a design problem with that particular kind of furniture that is always going to break in that place. So no matter how well you fix it, it will eventually mm-hmm. break again. Yeah. You, you make it so that they can just get rid of all the old glue and put in new glue. And, and sometimes even you can fix a joint just by reactivating the old glue and it just sticks back together. Right, but the archival EVA you can probably remove, but you're going to end up removing more of the paper with it. Yeah, prob- but probably. yeah, you can't you can't yeah. reverse it. You can't. No, no. It, 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 it creates but, a sort of stable plastic compound, yeah. which doesn't. But, but paste you can take off. So yeah. if you wash pages, for example, and and you feel the surface of it, you can. It, it feels a little bit more slick where the paste mm-hmm. is, and then you can gently take it off with with your fingers. So how do you clean a piece of paper? Uh, initially, you'd probably try to dry clean it with a with um, a brush to just get all the dirt out. And if that mm-hmm. doesn't do it, you would um, up the ante by using something like a smoke sponge. 
a smoke sponge. A what smoke is a smoke sponge? sponge? It's, a, it's a special sponge, and I'm not exactly sure what it's made out of, but it looks like um, a very dense brownish sponge. Okay. Um, and I think it, it, it sort of feels a little bit plasticky, and it gives a little bit more resistance, and it probably abrades the paper a tiny little bit, but it gets dirt out. and it So makes you're using huge, it dry, yeah? You're using it dry, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, some people also use Mars eraser for, for stubborn stains, but there you have um, that slight residue from, from the synthetic material. And that's Mars eraser, what's that? Uh, the white plastic eraser, it's called. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. So the regular yeah. kind of thing you yeah. have in school yeah. for. Yeah. For, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if none of that works, and depending if you have just the piece of paper, um, and if the ink is not water soluble, you could try washing it. Like with water? With water. That oh was really God. scary. I did that my first washing That is a very scary thought. <laughs> it's, it's the most amazing thing. Um, it, it's really terrifying when you first wash a piece of paper because you think it's going to disintegrate. Yeah. Um, but we put it between uh, two sheets of um, Holitex. Mm -hmm. And then you immerse it very gently and you make sure that there are no air bubbles. And then you can actually remove the top sheet of the Holitex and rub it gently to just... Clean it. Oh my God. And you re-affix the holotex, and then you take it out, let it drain, and you put it on blotter paper. And um, it feels very uh, stomach-wrenching the first time yeah. I did it. Yeah. But it, That's it was terrifying. Yes. Because like, the one thing you don't want your to go anywhere near your books is water. It's like if, if they're kept dry. I mean, I've got books in that bookshelf over there. Yep. Yep. That, have, that have been around since the oldest one there is from 1568, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And it's fine. Yep. If I dropped it in the bath... It'd be terrible, yes. It would be fucked. Yes, it, yeah. it wouldn't be a happy book, no. Yeah. I, don't, I don't read those books in the bath, not ever. Good plan. <laughs> yeah, modern paperback, no problem. Ah, uh, yes. I could just buy another one. But, but um, yeah, yeah, so, so it, it's funny. Like, it, it sounds to me absolutely terrifying to put a piece of paper in water like that and expect it to actually survive. It, it was the, the first few times. Um, I inherited uh, several prints and some other things from my grandmother, and um, I wanted to clean those up. So that is what I initially used to, um, well, at first I dry cleaned them, and after that didn't do it, I decided that I should really experiment with the washing. Okay. And um, I was really almost terrified to immerse it in the water after testing that the ink was fine and everything. Sure. And um, it survived and it did well and it looks pretty now. Wow. Do you have before and after pictures? I do. We are um, tasked with taking before and after pictures and um, we are supposed to do social media, but I'm unfortunately well, very you, you bad don't, with You that. don't need to do social media because well, I, don't, I don't care about social media at all, but... I think it'd be useful for the listeners who obviously can't see mm -hmm. what we're doing. Um, yes. If if you could send me the before and after pictures, I'll put them in the show notes so people can go to the. Oh, website. you can do that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That that'd yeah. be really interesting. Yeah. Um, but you know, it reminds me a little bit of the first time I used a blowtorch on a piece of furniture that was worth more than my house. Yes. Oh my god, it's that'd a, be terrifying. It, it, yeah. Um, I mean, most first time I used a blowtorch on a piece of furniture was. It wasn't a very expensive piece of furniture, and I mm -hmm. kind of learned the technique and stuff, and it was fine. Yeah. But you just think, well, wood is 
That's, that's what you make it, fires out of. That's it, yes. <laughs> 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 um yeah it's 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 a scary scary thing um okay so one thing one obvious question that comes to mind is you're learning to restore old paper yes. old books that kind yeah. of stuff yeah which means there must be a supply of old paper and old books for students to practice on yes where do they get this supply from uh, old libraries, libraries that have um, books that are not in circulation anymore, either because uh, they're not really of interest anymore or because they haven't been taken out in decades okay. or because they're moldering in some basement because they haven't been taken out in decades. Um, so that is what we do. Okay, get. so the libraries supply, so, so West Dean will like, ask the libraries you know send us all your old shitty books you don't want anymore and so our students can make mistakes on them i don't think they actually have to ask i think it's uh, sometimes the libraries say well we have these things we don't want to throw them away um because throwing books away is just wrong yeah um so they they make a donation of these books to further um the learning and skill of students like me um we also have private collectors of books Mm-hmm. that um, want to have them repaired, that want to have them restored and conserved and made boxes for them and all those things. Yeah, I would be very, 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 very cautious about sending, for example, my Kappa Pharaoh to a school for students to have a go at. Well, I, would, <laughs> I would want to take it to someone with at least two decades of experience in the industry. And, and like... You, and, and that is how you should do it. However, um, these students are being taught by people who have that yeah. experience and they wouldn't, we wouldn't be permitted to, to touch anything just for the sake of going into the safe, grabbing a book and, you know, oh, let's just no, repair sure. this. It's not how you go about that. No. I, I, and, and again, when I was working <laughs> on a piece of furniture that cost more than my house, I, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't unsupervised. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But, yeah, just, I don't know. Well, it's, it, it, but, and, and, but the students have to be taught. They have to learn. So there has to yes. be opportunities for them to actually work on these things. But you're definitely I, right. We learn on much, much, much less valuable books. Um, hmm. Last so I, year, if, yeah. if I ever had to have heart surgery, I yes. wouldn't want my heart surgeon to be doing it for the first time. You don't want it to be the intern? I don't know no. why, Guy. <laughs> really not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I hear you and I agree. And, and that isn't really what would happen. No, um, of course not. The instructors, the tutors choose very carefully who gets to do what. Yeah. Um, because, of course, they have a really good idea of um, the median skill of any one of us. Um, sure. Many of them also work on the books that come in. And um, in the 80s, I think it was in the 80s, we had um, a conservator, Christopher Clarkson, who um, was in charge of the conservation of books and paper. And he had um, vast experience rescuing books after the flood in Florence in 1966. Oh, God, yes. And many of the um, protocols for conservation, I think, came out of that catastrophe, really. Yeah, they, that they was had, an absolute catastrophe. That was it. one of the worst things. Yeah. 
yeah. And, ever and happened to, to museums and libraries. I think so, yes. And, and just the learnings that they took away from that, because I mm. think international conservatives from everywhere in the world really congregated in Florence, formed teams and worked to conserve and rescue these books and these materials that were essentially priceless. Yeah. And I think until then, it wasn't as organized and as structured as it is now. Sure. And he brought that skill and that knowledge to West Dean and imparted that to his students. And it was a very, very different time in terms of the people that took the course back then were all usually bookbinders with experience. Ah, okay. Who went there to learn conservation. But right. nowadays, you don't find that many bookbinders. True. Because if you go into commercial bookbinding, it's essentially the machine that perfect binds the book for you, slaps it together, and you're done. Yeah, I mean, my, my books that I publish, they are printed on demand, and mm -hmm. it is a giant machine that glues the text blocks together, and slaps mm -hmm. the cover on, yep. cuts it all to size, and off yep. it goes. Yep. Right? And it's a very cost-effective way of producing books. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah, and it, it, it does make a lot of sense. But then for... For learning this craft, um, there are a lot of books that were written about the making of books, the conservation of books, the restoration of books, the binding sure. of books, you name it, there's a book for it. Sure. Um, and over the course of last year, I had occasion to purchase several of them. Yep. Um, and some of them you open once or twice, and before you know it, this book about the conservation of books falls apart in your hands. <laughs> and you need to conserve it. Excellent. And you need to conserve it. So, you know, there's learning everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's like there, there's, a, there's a spectrum of book production with like printed on demand, perfect bound stuff yeah. at one end. Yeah. And there's things like what Michael Chinister is doing with the HEMA Bookshelf Project at the other end where, yes. yeah, I mean, his, his facsimiles, he's reproducing the collation of the manuscript as it's bound. Yes. That's just, that's like how many people would know or even care. But to me, that is just, that's why I just buy all of his books, whether I can afford them or not, just because it, it, like that level of detail, it needs to be supported. It, it's funny that you say that because I do the same thing. I've sadly never met Michael. I, I wish I could and would. And over the course, I probably will. Um, I really enjoy his projects mm. i like the books that he puts out oh that's so gorgeous and um more than that i really appreciate the level of detail yeah that that he endeavors with the facsimiles i mean like he goes through you know these are all being hand bound and whatnot mm -hmm. and there'll be like test pieces with different leathers for the covers and things like that. I mean, every detail is just, yeah. 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 It's amazing work. It, it's interesting too, because there are of course, um, very many small uh, binderies and presses mm -hmm. where they do very small runs of, of things, yeah. not necessarily with martial arts, um, but some do poetry, others do literature. For example, um, Ampersand and No Reply Press, they do lovely, lovely printings of books. Mm -hmm. um, and the attention to detail and the love for the craft is spectacular. Yeah, it's something I would like to do with one of my books, but I think I need to write a book that deserves it first. 
Don't you think your books deserve that? Ah, I don't know. No, I mean, like when you're when you're producing a book at that level, it costs a fortune because you've yes. got highly qualified people, highly skilled people, spending a lot of time working on it, and so they should cost a fortune. Yes. But I'm like, yeah, is that you know, it's not exactly Shakespeare, is it? I'm just telling people how to hit people with swords. But <sighs> but that's beautiful in and of itself, isn't it? Hitting people with swords. <laughs> well, yes, that's very true. Oh, well, we should actually talk about your. I mean, the reason we've actually met is because I've met you in Vancouver at Sword Events. So yes, we did. Um, so we should actually, given this is the Sword Guy podcast, we should maybe get onto swords at least for a little bit and then come back to books in a minute. <laughs> so yes, sure. Um, how 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 did you get into historical martial arts? Really cheesy. I always wanted to be able to fence like a musketeer, you know. Good. That that just was my my thing. And, and I Aurelia, never... you are not alone. On this, on the listenership to this podcast is pretty much evenly divided between Three Musketeers and Princess Bride on one side, yes. and Lord of the Rings Excalibur on the other side, and some people are both. With, with, a, with a bunch of Star Wars on the Excalibur end of things as well, because long swords and lightsabers are well, clearly yes. related. Um, but, you know, I would say probably a quarter of the people listening got into swords through the Three Musketeers. So you are not alone. I am relieved and pleased <laughs> to hear it. Um, but my endeavors were um, not really, I wasn't really, how shall I say it? I didn't pursue it for various reasons until I returned to Vancouver, actually, after a relationship breakup, which um, was actually a really good thing because it made me realize that I could do whatever I bloody well pleased because I have agency. Right. Good. So I did what every sane person does. They Google. Mm -hmm. And I realized that Vancouver actually had a historical martial arts school. Indeed. And um, I gathered my courage and I walked in. And I uh, met Devon at the front desk and asked if I could be taking courses. And he looked at me and said, of course you can. Well, yes. <laughs> As any same person would. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and um, I signed up. And because um, I don't enjoy the feeling of not knowing anything of what I'm doing, mm -hmm. I initially signed up for, uh, for private lessons. Okay. Before I went into the actual class, because I wanted to be sure that I knew how to hold a sword, and nobody okay. watched me being embarrassingly the newbie. That's a very interesting thing. It's not something I've ever really thought about properly when I should have done because I teach a lot of beginners. Is in a beginners class, uh -huh. one you know everyone is supposed to be a beginner, uh -huh. and so everyone is going to be not knowing how to hold a sword and not knowing how to stand properly and all that kind of stuff. Uh -huh. And having a beginners class that's explicitly and overtly and deliberately for beginners mm -hmm. makes it a lot easier for people who are shy about that sort of thing to join. Yeah. But it hadn't occurred to me that some people might be so shy about it that they'd rather take private lessons first before even starting the beginners course. Huh. Well that's yes. fascinating. No that's 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 fascinating. And and it occurs to me that there are things I could do to help people get past that particular gap. Yeah. Yes, you Interesting. could. Interesting. Interesting. Thank you for that. I, I have I have stuff to think about. <laughs> right. Uh, I yes. I shall make I shall make a little note. 
and and I shall I get back to the actual interview, and I shall stop my brain wandering off into that particular problem solving area. Oh, but that's a that's a good problem solving area to go into because um, it did help. I did feel better going into that first class, having an mm-hmm. idea of how to hold the sword and how to move my feet, how to align my body, and to go forth and poke somebody with a sword, right? Reasonably safely, safely. Sure. Okay. And um, from there, really, I um, did what was at the time the green cord class, so the entry-level fundamentals rapier course. Mm-hmm. And uh, I passed that and went on from there doing my um, rapier business, so to speak. So do you still, I mean, do you have rapiers in your house right now? Yes. Well, okay. No, 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 no. Okay. I, I understand the outrage in your tone there, but let, let me just let me just say why I that because um, you're on the Isle of Man, yes. middle of nowhere, whatever. Yes. You've you've yes. already made one major change. Yes. Like you've you've left your translation stuff yes. behind and you've yes. moved away from Canada to the Isle of Man to mm-hmm. start up this basically new phase of your life. Yes. It is quite common mm-hmm. for hobbies and interests to get left behind when you do that kind of thing. So I was just wondering, given that I mean, the Isle of Man is not famous as a hotbed of historical martial arts. Um, Although Vikings, you know. Yeah, but they use rapiers. No, that's true. But still, swordplay. Sure. Okay. Right. So, so I'm just curious. Do you do you get any any rapier action on the Isle of Man? I don't. I don't. You're right. Um, rapier is still my love. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, for assorted reasons, we've been looking at other we- weapons. My partner and I have, um, started with small sword. I love small sword. Isn't it lovely? It's so, ah, it's, but it's so fast. Oh my God. It's, it's so, so fast. And it's so utterly vicious and violent. Isn't it? It's, it's like a knife fight. <laughs> Everyone does it. It's just sort of, eh, you know, do, do a little bit out of measure and tip, 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 tip. But no, you're getting stuck in there and you're just murdering people. It's and because awesome. it's so short, you're in measure right away. Yes. It yes. doesn't take much. Right I mean, up close. You know, with the rapier, you have you have a certain distance and you sort of slowly work your way in. And with a small sword, pa-bam, there you are. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. It's an so, adjustment, so, but yes. <laughs> so you're doing small sword just with your partner on the Isle of Man, or do you train with anyone? Um, I have not trained with anyone. Um, I was lucky enough to find at auction um, a MacArthur. Okay. I have uh, a first edition, which okay. also contributed to me um, being inspired for the um, restoration of books, because somebody else actually conserved it for me and she did a marvelous marvelous job and um showed me that i too could possibly learn this there we are we, we keep coming back to, to discovering that you're able to learn yes um which is what it's all about isn't it once you Absolutely. stop learning you kind of die i couldn't agree more so you bought yourself a copy of macarthur what's the date on that it's about 1830 isn't it oh, it's a little late for yeah. my small sword. Is it? I don't know. You tell me. It's your book. Yeah, I know. I'm just looking at it. Ugh. You know when you're looking for something, you can't find it? Yeah. I know. Every Martial Attitude of the Art by J. M.C. MacArthur of the Royal Navy. Oh, it's old anyway. So it doesn't have a date on it? it no, I don't think huh. so. 
No. 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 <laughs> and, and again, okay, a lot of the people listening will be mad about long swords, and a lot of people listening will be mad about rapiers. And some people like me are mad about pretty much every blade produced in the history of time. Right? So, but, but it is, it's a good idea to know what your real interests are, not be pressured into, you know. Oh, it, it's not that I find them offensive or anything. I, no, I no, can no, appreciate just, the beauty just not of the weapon. Yeah, it's just, just not, not, not my weapon to, to use. Although, um, I had occasion to go to Solingen in Germany because Lovely. that is where they make paper also in Solingen. Yeah. And of course, knives. And they have that beautiful Kling Museum there. Yeah. And the um, exhibit of swords that they have there is really, really nice. And they do a special event there every year for knives and swords and things. Mm -hmm. And they um, It's something I've been meaning event. to get to. I've mm -hmm. never been, but I've been meaning to go for years. It's really worthwhile. They have also a lovely collection of early cutlery. Really? Yeah. Huh. Because, of course, Solingen makes knives of all shapes Absolutely. and sizes. It's, yeah. Solingen, yeah. Is, Solingen is to Germany, yeah. is Sheffield yeah. is to yeah. England, is Toledo yeah. is to Spain. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. And um, if you're looking for cooking knives, do go to some of the um, factory stores there. Okay. Yeah. Particularly nice. good or particularly good prices or both? Um, if you value excellent knives, yes. Both. Yes, a little bit. I have a lot of excellent knives. And one of the things yeah. I like about cooking is it gives you an excuse to buy great big plates. Yes, it does. <laughs> It, you know, good cleaver and a good chef's knife and then a little yeah. paring knife and it just goes from there. Yes. Okay. So you, you've done quite a bit of translation work, but I'm thinking that's mostly not swords. Is that right? It is mostly not swords. I did a little bit uh, on the side. Um, yes. Um, what's his name? The wrestler. Ott. No, not Ott. Um, oh, starts with an F. Starts with an F. Yeah. Sorry. The medieval wrestler? Yeah. Uh, Faulkner? No. No. Hang on. Where did it go? Auerswald. Auerswald. So not with an F then? No. <laughs> okay. No. Yes, his first name. Isn't it? Fabian von Auerswald? Oh, Fabian. Okay, there you go. Yeah, there we go. There you okay. Go. Anyway, just a little bit on the side, but, you know, n nothing, nothing major. Um, I'm always surprised by how little I do, but then I look at the work of Dirk, what is it, Dirk Hagedorn? Yeah. And who can keep up with that? That's so many books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I had Dirk on the show and I asked him how the hell he got so many books done because yeah. it's not even his proper job. Yeah. No, um, I know. I mean, yeah. he produces more books than I do, I think. Certainly more words than I do. Mm, and okay. this is my job and it's not his. Right. So I asked him and he said he doesn't watch TV. That makes perfect sense. I don't have yeah. a TV either, but I haven't yet managed to produce books like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so is, is there a like particular reason that you didn't get into translating German fencing sources? Is it because most of them aren't about rapiers? Probably. Okay. Probably, yes. And all the rapier ones are usually in Italian. Well, oh, yeah. So, Often. yes. Yes. <laughs> and uh, sadly, I don't speak Italian well enough. I probably wouldn't starve in Italy, but that's about the extent of my language skills at the moment. So. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, okay, so if Obviously, you're quite good at acting on ideas because yes. you decided you wanted to do you know, do book conservation. Yep. And so you just moved to the Isle of Man so that you would be close enough to the Western yes. School and just yep. enrolled and did that. Yes. Okay. So what is the best idea you haven't acted on? I knew the question was coming and I thought it was prepared. But really, in the end, um, <laughs> sooner, <laughs> sooner or later, 
I act on the ideas that really stick. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that I've had a really, really good idea that I haven't acted on yet because I, how do you say full body, full, full contact sport. Mm -hmm. Life is like that. You either dive in or you don't dive in. And, um, at the moment, the, um, book conservation, the paper conservation is my full time objective. Uh, there's a little bit of fencing thrown in. If I can, I do a little bit of horseback riding, some cooking and studying. And that's as far as that goes and working as much as I can to get the experience that I think I need, which is lots. Yes. Um, okay. I thought when I first came up with these two mm -hmm. final questions that I put in all the interviews, mm -hmm. I thought that it was actually quite a good question. It is. Um, and I'm, but I'm starting, I'm starting to think that maybe I should, think about dropping it because at least i would say a quarter or a third of the people who come on the show mm -hmm. don't have an idea they haven't acted on because they're the sort of people who act on their ideas yes. which is how they ended up coming to my attention and ending up on the show so again selection bias mm -hmm. so um it's 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 a very good answer to say well actually i just act on them so none <laughs> i'm busy acting on the best one yet however um, you can adjust it tell me and ask, what do you feel will be your next thing to act on? Okay. What's that then? Finding somebody who will put up with my beginner's knowledge once I graduate from this for two years or so. Okay. And wants me to learn. That is what's next. Will that not entail leaving the Isle of Man? Possibly. Because unless they actually are on the Isle of Man, you're, yes. you're going to need to actually like show up to work. But that is okay too. Five days a week. Okay. That is all right too. Well, yeah. I, I can totally recommend this chap in Colchester. Mm -hmm. And if you're in Colchester, you can come around my house and try and stab me with a small sword as often as you like. Oh, well, there we go. So that's not, not such a bad idea. That actually sounds like a really good plan, doesn't it? Okay. Would you like me to just drop him an email and ask him if he's at all interested in having an, a sort of a an apprentice type person. Um, let me finish. I'll come back to you on that. Okay. I Fine. think it would be fair for him to get um, somebody who's finished the training oh, as oh, far sure. as I could. But you yeah. want to plan it. You want to plan ahead. So yes. when do you plan to finish your training? Um, if all goes well, it ends next September and I'll know whether okay. I pass by next year, November. Okay. So you, so you need to be starting to look for places in like June, July, next, next summer. Year. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Fair enough. So, so circle back then, and if if you mm -hmm. don't have a, you know, if, if you want me to introduce you to the chap, I'll be happy to do so. Yeah, that'd be lovely. He likes me because when I went to when I went to um, take my sword and centuries to him, mm -hmm. I also brought my Fabris and my I didn't have my Capafaro yet, but also uh, my Girard and my um, Marozzo mm -hmm. because he's the sort of person who will appreciate them. Yes. Yeah. Right. And so we had quite a long chat about you know these old books and where they came from and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And it was funny. He was looking at them with a completely different set of criteria in his head mm -hmm. to mine. Yes. Right? He was looking at things like the crispness of the printing. Yeah. And the the quality of the paper that it's printed on. Yeah. And you know, the binding and how contemporary the binding is likely to be mm -hmm. and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, whereas I was mostly going, oh, pictures of swords. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm familiar with both of those ways of looking at the book. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, so my last question, I think actually we should modify it because if someone gives you a million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide, that's kind of not your central area at the moment. So what if somebody gave you a million dollars to improve conservation generally in which we can include historical martial arts, but we can also include bookbinding and anything else? So basically, you have a big chunk of money to make the world a better place. How would you spend it? I think I would find a way to encourage um, and support, really support, because I don't think he makes a lot of money off the books, um, projects like Michael's facsimiles. Sure. I um, like the idea of being able to catalog and know where these treatises are mm-hmm. um, so that they can be helped if they need help and made more accessible. Because I'm sure there are many, many private collections where fencing books, other books, are nicely hiding out and nobody really knows or cares because there are some huge houses, all of which would have participated in various wars, would have wanted to know how to fight with a sword and be interested in that. And um, it's just sitting in some library, hopefully not moldy. Yeah, hopefully dry. And it would be really nice to be able to put some effort into finding and cataloging and um, realizing how much there really is out there, filling some gaps, I'm sure. Okay. That's, I think, what I would like to, that money to go to. Yeah, that's that's quite a popular choice. Like, you know, give give Michael yeah. the money. Now, I've had long conversations oh. with Michael about how, how his... <laughs> how he would how, spend the millions he gets. No, no, no. no. <laughs> how, how he doesn't charge enough for his books. I'm like, dude... You need to be making more money per book. Because, I mean, even if he raises like $80,000 or something on his Kickstarter, he's probably taking home about three or four, right? It's pathetic the amount of money he makes on these books. He basically is getting them produced and distributed. More or less at cost. Yeah, just above cost. I'm like, man, if someone's paying $300 for a book, they'll pay 380 and you get to keep the 80. And that's okay for everyone because it means you can keep doing this. Yeah, um, he could also just add another tier. Yeah, he could. You know, um, yes, go go all the way and have have that book produced the way exactly that um, the original was. But um, of course, at the time, these books were bound by the people that owned them according to their taste and sure. the flavor of their library. So there is leeway. To have um, these books fit somebody else's library. Now that's a good idea. So, like, you have your regular tier, and then you have your custom tier at like twice the price or something, where you can choose the binding material and whatever. Yep. That is a very good idea. I will. I will inform Michael of this idea immediately, <laughs> and not not wait on the chance that he might listen to this episode. And then be so kind and send him my way. Yes, because I'd I, I be willing say, to I, do that. I would say yes. Aurelia needs some needs some bookbinding exposure, <laughs> and and it would be a good project for her. And and yes, that's actually not a bad idea, huh? Okay, okay. I should make a note. Tell Michael. <laughs> yeah, I think having the extra tier is a good idea, because um, it doesn't there, hurt. And yeah. there's always someone. Yeah, there are people who have the money who are willing to spend it on this thing. Yeah, and all, and um, also not just the money, but also the the inclination and the desire, right? I mean, right. having money is, is is one thing. Yeah, but it's um, like a right. shotgun. 
Yes. Like my, my sword fighting game when we mm-hmm. when we kicked when we did mm-hmm. an Indiegogo campaign yeah. for that. Yeah. Um we I figured it would cost about twenty five grand. I mm-hmm. think it's I think it was twenty five grand to make the first pair of decks. That's all the costs and everything mm-hmm. and you know, paying the designers and paying yeah. the graphic artists and the mm-hmm. printing and the shipping, all that stuff, right? And so we had a patron tier. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Where you could just be the patron of the game. Yeah. For twenty five grand. Right, yep. For which you'd get your own customized deck mm-hmm. and various other things. Yep. And literally, like a week into the campaign, um, this chap came up to me at an event and said, "So, what would I get for the patron tier?" Yeah. And I said, "Well, what do you want?" Yeah. And we had a chat about it, and you yeah. know, I said, "Well, one thing we can't do is fuck with the historical accuracy of the game because that's the core thing that mm-hmm. I care about." Yep. He said, "I wouldn't want you to. I'm totally on board with that." And yeah, so he ended up being the patron. Nicodemus Cariensis, as his deck is named. All right. And and if you know, if that if that tier hadn't been available, he wouldn't have come up to me and said, Actually, do you think I could just like be the patron and give you this big chunk of money? Well, it, it wouldn't, wouldn't have occurred to, to most people. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. Um having that having that sort of super high level of a tier mm-hmm. can be a really, really useful thing. Mm. Huh. Okay. Yeah, so we're sorting out Michael's business for him. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think he does. He <laughs> he sorted it this far. He'll be fine. <laughs> yes, he doesn't really need our help, but he does need our support. So, but none of us want him to stop. I don't think that's right. Because there's um, so many, many more books out there. Yeah. So your but your long term plan is to be a professional bookbinder and conservator, right? I would like to be a professional conservator. Yes. Definitely. So more con- more conservation than bookbinding. I really enjoy making new books and figuring out how that works, um, and um, it is an unexpected pleasure mm-hmm. to be that crafty and to learn to be that crafty with leather bindings and. I've had a brilliant idea. Yeah, I've had a brilliant idea. Right. Okay. My first book, Swordsman's Companion, mm-hmm. is twenty years old next year. All right. Right. And it is hopelessly out of date yes. from a historical yeah. fencing yeah. perspective. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people have a lot of affection for that book. Yes. Okay. All right. I think that I should pull it from general circulation mm-hmm. because it's totally out of date. Okay. But make a kind of 20 year anniversary thing where I combine it with Medieval Longsword, which is still, even though I wrote that one mm-hmm. t- 12 years ago, that's still actually pretty current. Mm-hmm. Um, so that when people are buying the Swordsman's Companion, they are getting the updated thing at the same time. Yes. Right? Yeah. But it would be super cool to have you do me a, for the top end support of the yes. crowdfunding campaign, a copy of the book that is that is done, shall we say, artistically. Really? That, yes. Well, guy, yes. Done. Okay. Um, so maybe maybe off microphone we'll mm-hmm. discuss how much it will cost and everything, all that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thinking we'd probably want three. Okay. Oh, right, one for me, mm-hmm. one for you know to sort of do on the campaign. Yes. Yeah. Um, and the way the way I hire artists for jobs mm-hmm. is I tell them exactly I tell them what I need and then mm-hmm. I give them an entirely free hand. So mm-hmm. it would be. This is the book. Mm-hmm. 
um, make it pretty. That's okay. that, that's the that's the level of of um, oversight you get. So this is the budget. This is the book. Do me what you want for that price, basically. The artists you work with like you, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> of course they do. Yes. <laughs> of course they do, because because they actually get to do what they want. Indeed. <laughs> and they and they actually get. To, and and here's the funny thing, right? Mm-hmm. They do work for me that mm-hmm. is massively underpriced. That right? is yes, I can see that. Yeah. Because because I'm not asking for like the first time I did this, I commissioned a knife um, for a friend of mine who's a fantastic knife maker, and I I didn't I had it I had enough money for basically his his lower end of knife, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And my my brief was, I have this much money, make me a knife. Yes. Right? Yeah. And the knife I actually got <laughs> was something like, if I'd had it commissioned, it would have cost at least three times as much because mm-hmm. he just, because he could do what he wanted, he just played with it. Yeah, and he took joy in it and uh, Ex- the joy exactly. was worth a lot. Yeah. E- exactly, exactly. Um, so, so, yeah, that's so... That's top tip for briefing artists. You know, Indeed. Give them as much. Find someone whose work you actually like and then give them as much freedom as you possibly can just to do the job their way. Let them have fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. That would be kind of fun, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. Okay. Yes. Let's yeah. Do it. All right. Sounds good to me. Okay. <laughs> what will you need? The parameters. So print files. Yeah. And... We'll, t- we'll talk about paper and the covers and leather and stuff. Sure. Headbands. Okay. Yeah, I've got to have headbands. Mm. Oh. Yes. <laughs> Very 80s breakdance. Can't have a book without a headband. Ooh. <laughs> it won't be as scary as that. Excellent. Um, okay. Oh, that's interesting. Now, actually, I just did want to circle back on one thing mm-hmm. before we come off. The beginner's course thing. Yes. All right. It would be useful for me to know what made you think of asking for private lessons before the beginner's course? I think the fact that I feel less watched and I would have considered private lessons right off instead of going into a group lesson. Okay. So um, it's not that I like attention focused on me, but I do like the idea of being able to ask a question when it is appropriate for me and in a, in, in a larger class that isn't always polite or possible, you know, because, because sure. you work within a group, it's a different dynamic. But when you have um, an instructor that is working with you as opposed to with a group, um, they see different things, they notice different things. Sure. Uh, the pr- critique is lessons, different. Yeah, private lessons are, are usually a better environment for every student anyway, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so I totally get why the private lesson is, is a better solution for you. Mm-hmm. But my question is, what made you think to ask for them? Because no one ever does. It seemed natural to me. I'm so sorry. Huh. Okay. So do you have a background in being taught stuff through private lessons? Horseback riding, yeah. Ah, okay. So having had the experience of private lessons on horseback and yeah. group lessons on horseback... Yeah. Going to fencing, you thought, okay, if I'm going to learn fencing, I'll be better off with private lessons, and so I'll ask for that. Yes. Interesting. Because a lot of people coming to Swords have never actually been taught anything like that, so outside of regular school classes and stuff. They've not right. actually 
taken up a hobby at the level of seriousness where you'd even consider getting private lessons. Right. Um, but I would venture that most of the people that start out with swords, and I'm generalizing wildly, sure. um, are also in a different age group. They're probably more in their 20s and not in their early 40s. So were you in your early 40s when you started swords? Yeah. Huh. Okay. Um, yeah, that would... That would probably... You know, that makes a difference because you... you it does make a difference. You walk yeah, in, life into school yeah. different, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, I'm just thinking of, like, it's not practical for every student to have private lessons before the beginner's course. Not least because a lot of people just simply can't afford it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's not an efficient use of the instructor's time given mm-hmm. the, yeah. the the dropout rate yeah. in... You know, people yeah. take up a hobby and they to try it out or whatever, and mm-hmm. some of them will quite reasonably decide that it's not their thing and move on right. to something else, right? But I knew it was my thing. Oh, sure. Okay. <laughs> I um, walked in there and I knew. No. Well, see, what I'm, what I'm, you're in a slightly unusual case in that you're walking into a bricks and mortar school in yes. downtown Vancouver. Yes. You I was lucky. To, yeah, I was really happen, lucky. You happen to see the chief instructor there sitting yeah. behind the desk, yeah. who is also a born salesman. Um, so, so it's, it's not a, it's not a representative case. That's not how most people come across historical martial arts. But what no. I'm thinking of is what, what can we do to make a, an onboarding ramp for students who are shy about showing up to regular classes, which doesn't necessarily require a lot of money from them or, or a lot of time from the teacher or both? Um, the, the, the sales skills all aside, I didn't need to be sold to. I know no, I, know, I, I wanted to do that, right? So <laughs> yeah, 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 I was, yeah, sure. I'm not suggesting that, that, that no, Devin, no. like kind of no, no, convinced you to take private lessons, not at all. Um, but it's one just, of the things that got many people in the door, and I think Marley might have mentioned that, is the Groupon thing. As silly as Groupon is, Mm -hmm. and as wasteful as it is, I think it removed a barrier in terms of, oh, let's just try it. Ah, And then you don't have that huge personal investment where you say, this must work because it's expensive or or so did other reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then you go in and you try it and you realize, hey, this is amazing. I can stab people and um, enjoy and get fit and train my brain and my body. And ideally, you stick with it or you investigate more. Okay. So so basically, the, the Groupon thing solves the, or something like it, solves the, I just want to try this out issue, right? I think so, yes. To, the, to, some, to some degree. In some ways, some it's horrible, though. Yeah, 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 yeah. It has all sorts. Yeah. But, yeah. but there are other, there are other ways to accomplish that same end. Yes. Like, for example, one thing we have done is have, like, on a Saturday afternoon, a trial mm. thing. Yeah. Anyone can come and have a go yeah. and try various weapons and various things, and then yeah. like an then open house kind up. of thing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Then mm-hmm. sign up, and that that is the same basic idea. But my the to me the trickier problem is you have a student who is potentially really keen, really mm-hmm. interested, but who has, I don't know, social anxiety or some mm-hmm. some yeah. sort of reluctance to just mm-hmm. showing up to a class, even a beginner's class. Yeah. I think that is a worthy problem to solve. Agreed. Um, 
And I, I don't, I don't think your particular experience is actually going to be terribly helpful to fix it because you're not actually a representative sample of that population. No, I'm not. Um, but I would think that many people start off by um, immersing themselves into what's out there online. Sure. Um, they try and do a lot of reading. Um, and if they're motivated, they might try implementing what it is that they're reading about. But the internet is the internet. Not all sure. of the stuff that you find on the internet is actually Any worthwhile. Good. Yeah. 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 So I'm... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have seen that some students will take one of my like free beginners mm -hmm. classes, yeah. sort of online courses mm -hmm. type thing, um, and from there, so having tried and that those classes are quite carefully designed so mm -hmm. that you can do it on your own, so yeah. you don't need a training partner, mm -hmm. and you don't particularly need a. I mean, it's nice if you have a weapon, but you can use a stick if you need to. Yeah, um, and it just gives people the idea of what it feels like to move and what it feels like to be doing this kind of training and what it you know what sorts of things they can expect and that seems to have helped at least some people some of the time yeah um but maybe being a bit more explicit and systematic about it like saying okay are you mad about swords but are you a bit nervous about showing up to a sword class well here is this free introductory thing you could do it on your own at home no one ever needs to know um, have a go and if you're interested then maybe try this or maybe we have this next thing that you can have a go at mm -hmm. and then and just actually explicitly and deliberately build people up to their first class right and that is a good thing however I tried um, some of the historical fencing groups that are in mm -hmm. Sussex yeah. and they basically have a waiting list for somebody to start a course which really? you know is not helpful that is not helpful at all yeah I have a waiting. More, more or less. It's like we're, we're at capacity right now. Uh, we're not taking on new students. And okay. Bloody hell. What a nice problem to have. Isn't it? <laughs> but it might also be that it's only one or two people teaching and they're doing it in their spare time. Yeah. Which, you know, they're, 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 I, I don't know the particulars, but I would gather it's something like that. And then I can see them saying, okay, we don't want... A huge class size. We want to be able to pay sure. attention to the individual students. But Aureli, can I can I just maybe suggest that that class size restriction may not apply to people who already know what they're doing? But how will they know without seeing me? Well, what they what you do is you say, "Hello, I'm Aurelia. I've taught classes at this and whatever or, mm -hmm. or in Vancouver, and mm -hmm. you know, give them an, an idea of your experience mm -hmm. and say." You're training at West Dean or whatever. Um, would it be all right to come along to, you know, to see you guys? Yes. Yeah. Right. And yeah. then they know you. Or they, they can, can check up on me. Theoretically, they can check yes. up on you. They yeah. know who you yeah. are. Yeah. And I mean, it can it can feel like a bit of a dick move to kind of jump the queue. But, a little. But the queue is not intended for. I, I'm pretty certain the queue would not be intended for people who already know what they're doing it will be intended for beginners they don't have the the space mm -hmm. for for more beginners right now mm -hmm. but but i've i've don't think i've ever come across a martial arts school where you know if, if you contact them directly yes yeah. if you contact them directly and yeah. say you know you know and i'm past and I'm, I'm, i don't live near you but i right. happen to be in your area can i pop by and and to be fair they do long sword mostly so ah which is no use i mean those peasants <laughs> so, those peasants <laughs> 
No, I didn't say that. I don't know that. No, no, no. And I am more of a longsword person than I am a rapey person. So I can say it and everyone knows I'm joking. So it's fine. No one has been insulted. We'll go with that. (laughs) Yes, I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure that that they'd be happy to see you. Um, I would try that this term when it starts in September. I'll go for that. And I, I, I may well know some of these people. So if you let me know who you want, if you want an introduction... Ah, just, okay. Just, yes. just, okay. just like send me an email, say who, who it is. And if I know them mm-hmm. and can reasonably provide an email introduction before you start. Then, oh, that'd be then. lovely. Okay. And again, right. It just, just makes the entry thing a bit easier. Yes, it does. Yeah. And what right. I do after that, it's um, up to me, isn't it? Absolutely. Indeed. Yeah. And, yeah. and, I, and I'm pretty confident that you're not going to like show up pissed and smash up the place and blind somebody and then you know, piss on the floor and walk out. I'm, I'm fairly confident you'll behave yourself. It is unlikely that I'll <laughs> embarrass you that way, guy. <laughs> exactly. So, yes, email introduction, no problem. Yeah. But it's funny. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have occurred to you to ask for that, would it? No. Huh. Because that would be thing. presuming. Wow. Okay. Why is that huh. surprising? Um, it's, not, it's not surprising, particularly in the context of the other things we talked about. Mm-hmm. It's not surprising at all. Um, but it is, um, it's the same problem or problem's the wrong word, but it's the same thing issue issue as the not wanting to show up to a beginner's class without already knowing what you're doing at least a little bit. (laughs) Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And you are absolutely not alone in that feeling. Mm -hmm. And you're also absolutely not alone in not taking advantage of networks that you have. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Because it just doesn't occur to you to go, oh, actually, well, I know this person and they know that person and I want to talk to that person. So I'll ask this person for an introduction. I mean, that's... It's the six degrees, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And it's, yeah. It's, it's, how, it's how networking works. Yes. Um, and, you know, I have, I absolutely am extremely shy in all sorts of public gatherings, but by email, I'm, you know, I'm quite happy to email anyone. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> okay. um so yeah and and it occurs to me that there's again there's a there's a not a problem to be solved exactly but an issue to be taken into consideration Mm -hmm. um with beginners also not wanting to presume yes right yeah and i mean i have had people contact me before a beginner's class saying they don't know anything about Swordsmanship, they've never trained anything at mm. all. Um, is it all right if they come? Yes. And I'm like, well, yes, it's a beginner's class. We expect people to know nothing and you're very welcome. And, yeah. Yeah. and But there are people who will feel that way and not feel entitled to actually send the email asking if they can come. Yes, yeah. And then they won't come. And then they won't come and then we yeah. miss out on perhaps yeah. the next the next cap of ferret. That would be horrible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in the in the end, people have to be a little bit courageous and try. That's true. And it occurs to me also that not like not wanting to presume. There's not. There's a flip side to this, right? Mm-hmm. It's been my experience. I've run dozens and dozens of beginners courses. Mm-hmm. It's been my experience that students who flag up sort of issues with I don't know. You know, they've got a sore knee or they've got a mm-hmm. health condition or whatever mm-hmm. before the class mm-hmm. 
almost invariably don't make it through the beginner's course, mm-hmm. right? And people who have much more serious conditions. And say nothing. And say nothing. And they just show up and say, yeah. well, actually, you know, I have this bone condition or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, can't, you know, do you think I can train? Yeah. yeah. Right? They, they tend to stick with it. Yeah. So it's not like we want to encourage people to I – because mean, basically contacting the school before you show up to the class is not correlated with longevity in the class. No. Right? So the issue isn't do email us before you come. The issue is feel free to ask for the things that you need. Yes. But also do you feel comfortable asking those things? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Huh. Okay. More stuff to think about, Aurelia. Oh, there's always more. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So, um, I have quite a, I have quite a to do list here. Actually, I've got to talk to Michael, and I've got to um, give some more thought to the TSC uh, Sources Companion Special Edition. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're going to send me a bunch of pictures. I will. Excellent. Um, but yeah, now I really need to go and think about this problem seriously because it's. It's it's one of the fundamental issues we have in historical martial arts generally that swords are scary and people are attracted to them but also scared. Which is funny because swords in and of themselves are like guns. It's how you use them, no? Yes, but but a sword fighting class is inherently more frightening than, shall we say, a bookbinding class because someone is going to be swinging a sword at your face. Possibly, but also if you're going into the bookbinding, you um, sooner or later learn the um, making of your tools, which involves knives because oh, you oh, need to pair the leather. Sure, but, but we're talking about beginners. Yeah, it's true. Right, who are who are probably not aware of the fact that they're going to end up doing some knife making on their bookbinding course. But it's right? so much fun. I know, I know, I know. But it's not. But it's not the thing. It's not the thing that. No, that first that springs to mind. Right, yes. but but the sword fighting class, you know that it's going to be there's going to be an opportunity for you to physically fail in front of a bunch of people, which is also true for book binding. Um, but there's also going to be the simulation of interpersonal violence, which is fundamentally frightening. Um, yes, simulation, but then you go to tournaments and it goes way beyond the simulation. Sure, it? sure, but again, again, we're not yeah. not further not quite like, there yet. Like yeah, okay. beginner yeah. thinking about their first historical martial arts class. One of the hurdles they have to get their head around is, will I be able to actually swing my sword at a person? And what will I do when somebody swings a sword at me? Okay. I didn't think about that at all. No, you don't. You didn't, maybe. But I've had plenty of students who did. Cause they, and I know because they told me about it. Like, actually, right, yeah. I was, the thing I was most worried about was someone was actually going to try and hit me and I thought I might freak out. Right? And people who have had issues, they're fine getting hit, but right. absolutely, you know, they, they really had to find kind of, critical reframings mm-hmm. for um, swinging the sword at the other person. Yes. Right? You basically have to frame it for them as you're not trying to hit them. Yeah. You're trying to give them an opportunity to practice. Yes. And so you're helping them by swinging your sword at them. And not pulling your punches. Right. And having your correct measure and all those things. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, no, I can see that. My measure is always short. well because you're shy about really thumping people yes as one should be well honestly it's not something that's ever worried me particularly (laughs) ah there's a difference though from school to school you know Um, yeah sure having now experienced uh different different schools literally 
Um, yeah. Not everybody believes in in not slamming your opponent when you have the opportunity. You know that there are people who actually do that, and why would you? I have no idea, but they do hit way too hard. Yeah, that is a problem. And no, the sword um, doesn't have to bend when it hits me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, that is an issue with um, sort of like, there, well, there's a spectrum, right? On yes. one end, you have no contact. On yes. the other hand, you have full contact. And yes. historical martial arts are somewhere in between. Yes. If you had truly full contact historical martial arts, people would die. And truly no contact is useless. It's pointless, yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Somewhere in the middle, there's a, there's a, there's the useful spectrum. There's a happy medium, like, yeah. Right. Well, think of it like the physical spectrum of light. You've got stuff at either end, but the stuff mm -hmm. we care about. Um, I I tend towards the hit with a little bit of hit a little bit harder than some other people might, mm -hmm. but very much short of causing any kind of injury. Yeah. And also, if we're talking about hitting people in the head, they have to be wearing proper equipment. Fencing masks don't do it. Right. Yes. So. Um, so I think I will probably be somewhere towards the heavy end of the spectrum mm -hmm. from your perspective, and you're mm -hmm. somewhere towards the lighter end from my perspective. Um, but it's it's a thing that has to be communicated to students mm -hmm. why we do it a certain way and what the advantages are. Yes. Um, and, you know, if you do enough, like, unarmed martial arts with punching and kicking and stuff, mm -hmm. you get used to getting hit pretty fucking hard. Yes. Um and that's a useful thing for a martial artist to be able to tolerate. Yes. Or at least know how to deal with that. Yeah. Emotionally, and otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, but it's perhaps not a necessary... I mean, we're not talking about beginner's course stuff. This is like way... This is way past further, that. Yes, I know. Yeah. 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 Huh. But I, I like the idea of, of the wrestling being a part of um, the progression of teaching and learning. Because sooner or later, the sword fight does become a brawl, doesn't it? If you were to. It, it can do. Yeah. Particularly with blunt swords. I think it's less cool. of a problem with sharp swords because the person is more likely to actually die when you stab them in the face rather than keep closing in to wrestle. Yes. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I mean, Fiori was right. Put wrestling first. Cool. Um, but it's, it's funny because an awful lot of people do rape you because they really don't like the idea of wrestling, which is ironic. Just, yeah, okay. I'm not sure whether you actually have to like wrestling, but you should know your way around it. Well, exactly. Yes, I agree. I mean, I, I am not particularly a wrestler. It's not my mm. favorite modality. Yeah, I'm no. much more of a hitter than a grabber. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, you, you need to know. Yeah. Exactly. You need to know you, yeah. your way around it. And you need to um, know what's coming at you, you know, and yeah. how, how to properly re respond to that. Yeah, it's like the old BJJ saying that... Um, the, the best way to defend against groundwork is to learn groundwork. Yes. Um, and they're definitely right in that. Yeah. Okay. I, I have so much to think about, Aurelia. I'm going to go away and think about it. So thank you so much for joining me today. It's been lovely to see you. Thank you for having me. I wish you could have seen me. That would have been nice if I could have organized that. But there we are. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Aurelia. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode as usual. And yes, there are pictures of that, um, that print that got cleaned, and it's astonishing the before and after. You won't believe it. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses.
And remember, join us at swordpeople.com, even while we're cleaning house, to join the only troll-free online community for sword people. I would like to thank the people who make this podcast possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them, I would have given up in despair long ago. You can join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. And as always, the music for this show, the Baroque harp accents that adorn every episode uh, were originally recorded by Andrew Lawrence King for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. Now, next time I'll be talking to Jason Kingsley, OBE, co-founder and CEO of the games company Rebellion Developments, which also owns 2000 AD, and he's the man behind the YouTube channel Modern History TV, starring Warlord, his amazing horse, which goes into depth and detail regarding many aspects of medieval life, most notably combat and horsemanship, but also aspects of daily life. He is the author of a new book, Leading the Rebellion, Great title, very catchy, and of course ties into his game company. Nice work there, Jason. But really, his main claim to fame is his first appearance on this show back in episode 81. So, Jason is coming back on the show to tell us all about his new book. You don't want to miss it. It was a fascinating conversation where we actually kind of forgot to talk about the book for most of it because um, we got chatting about sort of medieval combat and stuff. But yes, it's a fun conversation. Definitely don't miss it. So, tune in next time and of course, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. And of course, if you've particularly enjoyed this episode, tell your friends about it, share it on the socials, send it to anyone who you think might be interested. Thanks for listening. And I will see you soon. (laughs) 